So we're starting a new teaching series, The Beauty of the Gospel. Over the next six, seven weeks, we're going to be looking at some of the foundations of our faith, um, the root of this gospel proclamation and the fruit that flows from the gospel proclamation. So week one, this is the foundation. I'm going to do the root stuff, which is the message of the gospel. And then over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at the fruit that flows from the root. We're going to look at the forgiveness that flows from the gospel proclamation. Victory, victory over darkness, over death itself over the schemes of the evil one. We're going to be looking at power, the power of the gospel. That's Pentecost Sunday. Get ready for it. Um, That's going to be fun. We're going to be looking at the gospel family, the family that's created through this gospel message that we're sons and daughters of God, which means if you look to your left, look to your right, welcome to your family. These are your brothers and sisters, by the way. Um, Then we're going to be looking at the justice that flows from the gospel. Shane Claiborne is going to be joining us from the States as we look at this new order that's established through this message, the justice that's unlike any other justice system you'll experience on the face of the earth. We're going to look at our identity as the beloved of God. How great is the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God for that is what we are. And then we're going to be looking at the gospel opportunity. Something crazy is happening right now where there is a spiritual hunger growing in the church. Emma referenced this at the beginning of the service. In in 20 plus years of ministry, I've never known a spiritual hunger like this. Like it is really, really beautiful. And at the same time as this spiritual hunger growing in the church, there is a spiritual openness in the city, on our streets, in the culture. Now, when you get a spiritual hunger stirring in the church and a spiritual openness out the side of the church, you put these two together. These are extraordinary days. These are exciting times for the followers of Jesus. Um, And we should be leaning in with a sense of expectancy. I've mentioned this before, but when I went to Asbury, where there's been this outpouring of the Spirit um, and hundreds of young people coming to faith, to be in a room with like mainly Gen Z demographic under this outpouring of the Spirit, what, what I saw, and I'll never forget this, was a younger generation mesmerised by the person of Jesus like mesmerised by the presence of Jesus, like tasting the goodness of God. In other words, the fruits of the gospel. This wasn't just intellectual belief. This was feasting on the goodness of the gospel, feasting on this peace that passes understanding, feasting on this grace that is sufficient, feasting on our new identity, that we're sons and daughters of God and there is a hope for our future and there's a purpose in the present and we can be liberated from things in our past that hold us back, like seeing young people captivated by the goodness of God. More than just intellectual belief, feasting on the goodness of the gospel. And I think one of the things the Lord is stirring in the church right now, stirring in our church, but many other churches, is restoring awe and wonder to the church. That when we think about the goodness of God and the goodness of the cross and the goodness of the resurrection, our response isn't just, huh, that's cool. Our response is like, wow, God is good and this good news needs to be shared. So I wanna start with a story 
Stories have a way of just raising faith levels, reminding us of the power of God to, to transform lives from the inside out. So this is a story. The backstory to this testimony is my mum used to work as a chaplain in a medical practice in Birmingham, the Caris Medical Centre. And this was a pretty standard GP surgery where you had a number of GPs. But every so often the GP would say to someone that had come in, look, I, I can't offer you drugs like antibiotics because what you're presenting, it, this isn't medical. Like this is beyond the physical, might be emotional, in which case we're going to point you towards some counsellors. But do you know what? It, it might be not just emotional, it might be spiritual. And we have a chaplain. And if you're open, our chaplain, Annie, would be more than delighted to pray with you. Now you might think in the secular age that we find ourselves in, no one would want prayer. When you go to the GP, you want drugs, right? You wouldn't be thinking, yes, I'll have some prayer from a chaplain. My mum was inundated. Like working throughout the week, so many people wanted prayer. Not because they were Christians or raised in Christian faith. They were spiritually open, hungry, and they were desperate for someone to pray. Now, this is a story of one lady who encountered Jesus. Her life was turned around. And I want to read you her testimony. I was always one of life's achievers. Fast lane material, a bright child with a privileged education and upbringing, not a wealthy family, but one rich in love, stability, encouragement, and with the right life values of goodness and kindness. Born into a small affluent village in the south of England, I was protected and secure from the big bad world. A picturesque Church of England primary school and a family involved in our village and church community, I was always identified as a very spiritual, gifted, pretty, articulate, artistic, kind, happy and popular child. She forgot humble as well. Clearly had that as well. So from university, my career flourished in advertising and marketing, being blessed with prettiness and becoming very ambitious. I started to relish the world of impressive cars, money, status, city, living, the glamorous world of business trips to Cannes and champagne breakfast galore. The charming men went with that too. Now, the downward spiral was rapid. Pride and selfishness started to consume me. And I didn't like the person I was becoming. Irresponsible, thoughtless, superficial, careless with money and my own safekeeping. So I drank and partied even more to disguise myself loathing and ignore the slippery slope I was heading down. Two failed marriages, I subsequently fell headlong into an emotionally abusive relationship with a man who was unintentionally cruel. Life began to rapidly crash. I was made redundant, suffered a stress-related breakdown, drank excessively, had to take myself through bankruptcy, got banned for drink driving, and there followed two years of weekly appointments with probation officers, bankruptcy trustees, courts, job centres, doctors, every relevant social service needed, for, and travelling by bus and foot to sell clothes, jewellery, and any belongings of value to pay the rent. Through all of this, the man who claimed to love me and wanted a life with me was nowhere to be seen and ran away from the reality. The cruelty and brutality left me barely able to breathe and my self-esteem battered. On top of all the court cases and pressures, I was heartbroken and felt abandoned as the man I loved went off and parted with his executive friends and started a relationship with his secretary, who was a friend of mine. I remember the first session I met with Annie, the chaplain, aka mum, and her gentleness and compassion touched me to the core. When she asked if she could pray for me 
and laid her hand on my shoulder to ask God to be in my situation, something changed forever. I walked home in floods of tears awash. I'll never know how I walked the length of the Hagley Road, but I knew that something was being released and could feel a warm love seeping in where there'd been such devastation, bitter coldness, rejection, darkness, betrayal, and fear. My heart was still broken and my drinking was heavy. But after a bold step one bleak Saturday, walking home in the rain with heavy shopping bags and a desperate sense of there must be more to life than this, I plucked up the courage to walk into the church and seek help. I felt a tripwire physically stop me by the front doors as if God was pulling me in. It was time to reconnect with him properly after 40 years in the wilderness. And I was ready. Still battling with self-esteem, scars and drinking, but working hard at my faith and Christian walk and coming to baptism early that year. I then hit a major downer late that year after another relational knockback, still having not dealt with the first. I had a few days of total self-destruct with neat alcohol and no eating. By the grace of God, a friend dropped in and found me having seizures and called the paramedics to rush me to city hospital. In accident and emergency that bleak night, all I can remember is that the nurses could not even steal my body to have injections or sedatives and left me to it. I reached a peak of a seizure and knew and felt in my heart that this was it. I thought I was going to die. No one was near me. No one could see me. With all my strength, I pushed up my body and cried out as loud as possible, help. I know nothing of the next few days only that my consultants witnessed a miracle in all my vital functions returning rapidly to absolute normality and the monitors gently oscillating instead of looking like a thermonuclear device had gone off in them. At worst, they thought I could lose my life with the amount of alcohol poisoning in my body. At the very least, they thought I'd be left with neurological damage or liver damage. But to this day, since that year where I faced death, I've not touched alcohol or cigarettes and have no desire for them. My body is the healthiest it's been for decades. There is no damage. God has washed me anew. Life is so good. Last year, I was given the opportunity to go back into a high profile marketing job with an amazing car and money package, etc. And really thought this was the complete turnaround as I'd be going back as a born again Christian with a different approach to everything. But it didn't last long as I was soon yearning to be effective to people in need and felt God's calling to use my past misery for his ministry. And if you fast forward the clock, she quit her job. She now works with teenage girls with drug and alcohol addiction. She's training for ordination so that she can be a pastor in her local church. That, my friends, is the power of the gospel. And that why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. So I'm gonna proudly proclaim this message of Christ crucified. So we're gonna be unpacking what are the roots of this gospel proclamation and what are the fruits of this gospel proclamation. So if you've got a Bible with me, both of you that brought your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Otherwise, put it up on your phone or you're gonna see it on the screen behind. 1 Corinthians 15, this is where Paul outlines the ingredients of this gospel message. He says, now brothers and sisters, I wanna remind you of the gospel I preached to you 
which you received and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you've believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Just pause there. This is Paul saying what I received, in other words, this gospel message that transformed my life from the inside out, what I received, I'm now passing on to you the raw ingredients of the gospel, which are of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, which is the name for Peter, cracking name, and then to the Twelve, and the passage goes on. I want to highlight a couple of things to you. Paul says that this is a message I preach to you. you you've got to get this, that the Gospel is a message to proclaim not an ethical framework or a lifestyle to embody. It's a message that needs proclaiming. Paul says in the book of Romans, faith comes through hearing. If people are gonna hear the gospel message, someone needs to proclaim the gospel message, which is why Paul spent his time preaching the gospel message. You may have heard this famous quote from Francis of Assisi, who said, preach the gospel and when necessary, use words. And for a younger generation like ours, it's like, oh, brilliant. That means we don't need to preach the gospel. Brilliant. Just need to be really nice to everyone, which is exactly not what Francis of Assisi was saying. He was basically saying, when you live a body shaped, live a life, sorry, shaped by the gospel, Proclamation. When you demonstrate in how you treat your neighbour and how you live this gospel message, then people are going to ask you questions and then you need to be ready because that will be the point where it is necessary to use words. It's why the Apostle Peter says, always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have. If you're living a lifestyle that embodies this proclamation, you got to get ready. You've got to get ready because people are going to ask you questions. Why are you living in hope when everyone else is experiencing despair? Why are you operating in joy when we're experiencing hopelessness? Like, give me an answer for this hope that you have. You've got to be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within. So this is a message to proclaim. What is the message? Okay, so this is the moment where Paul leans in and says, okay, here are the ingredients that are of first importance. That Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. He was buried, that He was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, and then He appeared to His mates, right? Now, I want to underline one phrase that Paul uses twice. He repeats it because it's incredibly important. He says that Jesus died and he rose again according to the Scriptures. According to the Scriptures. What, what is Paul trying to say there? He's trying to say that this gospel proclamation, right, is situated in a story. The wider story with God's engagement with his humanity. This message, this proclamation is found within a story. It's embedded within a story, right? So we need to embrace the story. Now, before we look at the story, I love these words from Ivan Illich. He says this, he's an Austrian priest and poet. He says, neither revolution nor reformation 
can ultimately change a society. Rather, you must tell a new powerful tale, one so persuasive that it sweeps away the old myths and becomes the preferred story, one so inclusive that it gathers all the bits of our past and our present into a coherent whole, one that even shines some light into our future so we can take the next step. If you want to change a society, then you have to tell an alternative story. Now, these are extraordinary days where I feel like I'm witnessing a younger generation rip up the scripts that have been handed to them. Rip up these scripts, these narratives of human flourishing that their parents have passed on to them, that the secular culture has passed on to them. I'm just seeing this happen again and again and again. Young people saying, this doesn't work, screw this. I need a better story. These stories aren't satisfying the deep longing of the human heart. I'm going in search for a better story. And guys, we've been entrusted with a better story. The story of God on a mission to make all things new. We need to live in the story, live out the story and proclaim the story. So this is a summary of the story. Many of you will have seen this before. Lean in, hear it again, receive it again. Right, so creation. This is Genesis 1 and 2. This is a vision for human flourishing. God creates Adam and Eve in His image and likeness, places them in a garden of abundance. In this part of the story, there's no sin, no sickness, no suffering. Humanity fully alive in relationship with God, fully alive in relationship with one another, fully alive in relationship with created order. That's what we were created for, right? Then Genesis 3, sin enters the story and created order begins to unravel. We call that decreation. So Genesis 3 through to Genesis 11 is the story of the unraveling of created order. Violence begins to fill the earth. Then Genesis 12 onwards, is the story of Abraham, is the story of Israel and the story of Israel is fulfilled in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. This is the story moving towards recreation, restoring everything to how it was in the beginning. So the end of the story, if you know it, Revelation 21 and 22, this epic moment of the story and one of the tragedies of the church, right? is that we don't know the end of our story, many of us. If you were to ask people outside of the church, what do Christians believe about the end of their story, right? Many people outside of the church would say, I think they believe this, and I think they're mad by the way, but I think they believe that when you die, you basically leave your body behind, and your soul ascends to some sort of disembodied bliss where you ride around on clouds, drinking Red Bull, singing average Tim Hughes songs for all eternity. That's what they believe, right? And it's a tragedy that they think that's the end of our story. But do you know what's a greater tragedy than that? Is some of us within the church think that's the end of our story. That isn't the end of the New Testament. It's not the end of the kingdom story. Like we don't ascend to some sort of disembodied bliss. If you read Revelation 21, 22, God comes down, not us ascending. God comes down and makes his dwelling place with humanity, right? And as God comes down, there is reconciliation between God and humanity, between brother and sister, between us and created order. And the Apostle John who's writing down this vision sees God sitting down on his throne, which is indicative of his work coming to completion. And he says, Behold, I'm making all things new. 
right? Now, in the New Testament language of Greek, there are two words for new. There is neos, which means brand new. And there is kainos, which is something old that's made new. It's restored to its former glory. And when God sits down on his throne, he says, behold, I'm making all things kainos. I'm restoring everything to how it was in the beginning in Eden, when there was no sin, no sickness, no suffering, humanity fully, fully alive. And the Apostle John, as he's writing down this vision, you can almost feel the excitement jumping off the page as you read it. He basically says, as this vision unfolds, I can see there's no death and there's no grief and there's no crying and there's no pain. The former things, in other words, decreation, it's passing away because God's renewing and redeeming all things. It's the most incredible end to the story. It trumps Red Bull clouds, Tim Hughes tracks. Like it's an amazing end to the story. Thomas Merton, a Catholic writer, said this. He said, our lives are shaped by the end we live for. Do you know that's your trajectory? Your trajectory is the new creation, the renewal and redemption of all things, right? This story is glorious. And the story you live in is the story you live out. So when Paul says, what are the raw ingredients of the gospel proclamation? He wants to underline this proclamation is situated within a story. A story of God on a mission to renew and redeem all things. So if you look at the next slide, he basically says, like God in Christ, the God-man, God in human flesh, incarnation, incarnate, literally meaning in flesh. You'll have heard me say this before, but chili con carne, chili in meat, God con carne, God in human flesh, right? God has drawn near to us, like he's died for our sins and he's been raised to new life to fulfill this narrative, which is about God renewing and redeeming all things, right? This is the gospel proclamation through the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, all things have been made new. The end of the story has broken into the middle of the story. And we don't need to just intellectually believe this stuff. By the Spirit, we can begin to taste on the first fruits of the new creation. Where is Jesus right now? Not a trick question. He's at the right hand of the Father, right? And Paul says in his letters to the church in Ephesus, he said, if you are in Christ Jesus, you are seated with him in the heavenlies. And because that's where your identity is located, if you're seated with Christ in the heavenlies, then every spiritual blessing is yours. You don't need to just intellectually believe and like grip on, right? No, you can begin to taste and see that God is good. You can begin to, right, whilst we await Christ's return where we fully experience his kingdom. But even in the meantime, we can begin to foretaste it, this peace that passes all understanding and this grace that is sufficient and forgiveness of our sins and this love that casts out fear and pushes back shame and hope for the future and purpose in the present. You can begin to taste and see that God is good in the here and now. So back to this diagram, you've got the roots that lead to the fruits, right? We want our friends, our family, our co-workers, our colleagues to experience the goodness of the gospel, right? Like we want the fruit, 
But are we willing to proclaim this message? In other words, the seed that leads to the roots that lead to the fruits. We want the fruits. Are we willing to proclaim a message that has the power to save, right? There is a scientific process for how a seed is planted in the ground and germinates and becomes a tree which yields fruit, right? There is a process for that. I don't really understand or know the process, but I'm telling you, there's a scientific process for it, right? Now let's switch metaphor because I do understand this process. Imagine this scenario where you have a, a loaf of bread and you encounter someone who's dying of starvation and, and they are desperate for food. I mean desperate for food and they know you have bread and they are begging you for bread. And imagine your response to them is like, yeah, I, I know you need bread. I have some bread. I, I, I'm going to give you some bread. But just before I give you some bread, I just want to give you a scientific explanation of how this bread is going to save your life. Right, just be patient. I know you're desperate. Just give me two minutes. I just want to explain how this bread is going to rescue you. So in a minute, I'm going to give you the bread and you're going to take a bite on the bread, right? And, and you're going to begin to chew on the bread. The scientific name for that is mastication. You have to pronounce it correctly, mastication. So right, so as you chew the bread, um, enzymes in the saliva are going to break down these particles. Um, and then the food is going to be passed through the esophagus and down the esophagus into the stomach where more acids and enzymes are going to break down the food particles. Now from the stomach, it's then going to go to the the duodenum, the small intestine, where the goodness in these particles is passed through the duodenum into the bloodstream and it's sent around your body. The stuff that you don't need is going to go into the large intestine, the colon, eventually out through your rectum. That's the stuff you don't need, so don't worry about that stuff. But the goodness passes into your system, sent through your bloodstream to the rest of your body and it's going to bring life to your body. Now, what will the response of that guy be? The response will be, I don't care. I just want the bread. I just need the bread, right? The science doesn't save him. The bread does, right? Now, when it comes to the gospel, Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. It's the gospel that saves, not the science of salvation. When I talk to a particularly younger demographic about their faith and sharing their faith with people at work, I often get met with, I just wouldn't know where to start. I don't know how to do it. Some of the key doctrines of my faith, justification by faith, substitutionary atonement. I, I don't feel like I've grasped fully these doctrines. I don't back myself in a moment of encounter to explain how this gospel message saves. And because I don't back myself, Myself, I experience a level of paralysis, so I don't even bother. And I guess I want to take some pressure off your shoulders. You don't need to articulate the science of salvation, right? What people are looking for is living bread. They're just looking for Jesus. And Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. When you feast on me, you will experience the fullness of life you were made for. Now, I'm not saying these doctrines are unimportant. Like, I love theology. I believe these doctrines are 
unbelievably important. So I'm not trying to undermine justification by faith, substitutionary atonement, the list goes on. I'm trying to underline that these doctrines belong to a story and the central focus of that story is the gospel proclamation that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we can experience renewal, redemption, and restoration. So let me close with this quote. There are seven recorded sermons in the book of Acts, right? So the book of Acts is the story of the early church. They've witnessed with their own eyes, Jesus die and be raised to life. They've witnessed him ascend to the Father. They've experienced the outpouring of the Spirit. They've seen the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. They've seen this message, this proclamation, turn their culture upside down and they're desperate. We just got to tell everyone. We just got to tell everyone. So they're constantly preaching the gospel. There are seven sermons in the book of Acts. Acts 2, Acts 3, Acts 4, Acts 7, Acts 10, Acts 13, Acts 17. These are great models for us. If you want to know how to preach the gospel, let's just go back and listen to how the early church preached the gospel, right? Each of these gospel sermons focus on the story of Jesus's death and resurrection, rooting these events in the Old Testament and in the wider story of Israel. In other words, within the macro narrative of Scripture, creation, decreation, recreation, before calling people towards repentance, metanoia, Greek word repentance, literally means to turn around, to turn towards Christ, to rip up the alternative scripts and embrace this gospel proclamation, to receive forgiveness of sins, that through the cross our sins are washed away, but none of the seven sermons mention hell. You can imagine some people are like, really, what? what? That can't be right. My pastor back home wouldn't agree. Like, just read the sermons for yourself, right? And again, I think understanding the doctrine of hell is really important. I'm just saying, when they preach the gospel, you won't read them articulating a theology of hell. Only one of the seven sermons mentions justification by faith. I passionately believe in the doctrine of justification by faith, right? I'm just saying, I'm reading through these sermons and there is no full articulation of substitutionary atonement, right? All of that comes later with the Apostle Paul as he begins to write letters to the church to basically say, we should be caught up in awe and wonder about this gospel proclamation that has the power to save, right? We should be experiencing awe and wonder. And I'm going to tell you about the science of salvation, how this proclamation through these key doctrines restores not just individuals, redeems not just individuals, but redeems the entire cosmos, all of created order. So Paul begins to unpack all of that. But when you ask about the gospel proclamation, it's essentially introducing people to Jesus with a very simple message that he lived. He died for our sins. He rose again. And if you want to experience resurrection life, just repent and turn to him. Like if I was in a moment now articulating the gospel, you know, two minute elevator pitch, This is what I'd be saying. I'd be saying, you know that craving you have at a soul level, like the deepest longing of the human heart, that craving does have a remedy and you're not gonna find that remedy in a bit more success in the workplace. And you're not gonna find that remedy in an unbelievable sexual encounter. 
And you're not going to find that remedy in a drug-fueled high. And you're not going to find that remedy with more money in your bank account. And you're not going to find that remedy anywhere else. But you will find it in the person of Jesus who said, I'm the bread of life. And if you feast on the person of Jesus, if you turn to the person of Jesus, he can give you the fullness of life you were made for. You don't need to rule yourself out when it comes to sharing your faith. You don't need to understand all the science, right? There are places for that. The Alpha Course, other environments where we can intellectually wrestle with the rational foundations for our faith. People on the street are hungry and they're tearing up scripts searching for a story and you have bread. God has entrusted you with a story and a message. And when you share it, lives are transformed. And it's time for the church to rise up and proclaim the gospel. Mm -hmm.